0: 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is our text for this morning as we work our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse, word by word, through this precious letter uh, that we've entitled the series, The Gospel for Life. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, we do want to thank you for praying for us this past week at uh, the Treasuring Christ Together slash Rooted Summer Camp it was a fruitful week in, uh, in in many ways, and we would encourage you, if you've not already done so, just to take some time and uh, ask some of your children uh, just a few of the highlights and uh, what were some things that God was, in His kindness, pleased to begin to identify and point out, and uh, our church shared this camp with two other churches, uh, with leaders of those churches, so it was good for us, and I think... And, and especially good for our students to be able to sit under uh, other faithful teaching. And uh, we're grateful that these men that, um, that preached in, in, within the theme that God has spoken uh, were faithful to the text. And i so grateful for Pastor Brian's leadership, thankful for um, the, the adults that made their way there, and uh, over, over and over and over and all, it was a wonderful, wonderful week, and uh, so grateful for those who helped and assisted. And just a just a couple of highlights from the from the week. One of which that uh, left an indelible mark on my life was when I turned around and I saw dear Miss dear sweet Miss Kathy Talley reared back, getting ready to hit Pastor Brian Smith, and, uh, and I was. I, I was sitting back in that kitchen saying, do it, do it, Eddie, Sluggy." and then uh, just another occasion, one of the leaders, I won't, <clears throat> uh, I, won't, I won't mention this leader by name, but only by her initials, uh, Kelly Baker, and uh, <clears throat> who s- said to me Friday morning, if you set that fruit punch out again, I will throat punch you, so guess, uh, guess what did not get set out? on that uh on that friday morning uh but this is this really is such a delightful group uh, to get to spend a week with and uh, we're so thankful for each of the leaders and how god used them in the lives uh, of your children so uh so thank you and continue to continue to pray weeks such as this uh can bear such uh they can bear eternal lasting fruit in the lives of our Uh, our adults and our children. So thank you for letting us get away. Thank you for praying for us. And uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 beginning in verse 1 and I'll read all the way through verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. God, we do thank you for this opportunity you've given us. We thank you for how you've situated our church right here, right now in this letter, and we pray, Lord, we beg of you, we implore of you to open our eyes to see and our heart to believe wonderful things that you say about yourself from your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. There's a clear reason that mixed in with the teaching on spiritual gifts and their use is this chapter on love. I've come to appreciate some of the resources that I've been consulting and Looking at lately, where the authors are against being polemical or divisive. This is how we should approach theological issues where there is freedom for disagreement. Paul told them from last chapter, in chapter 12, that these gifts were given by the Spirit individually, as the Spirit wills, for the common good of the church. So, what is good for the church? should not also divide the church and when the prevailing aroma in the midst of the church is Christ-like love then we will not be divisive so we could probably simplify and say any division that would ever exist among us if we were to trace it back to its core is going to zero in on the issue of a lack of love that exists among us we should be aware of that we should labor against that and God in his kindness knows that in this, in this uh, church it's full of divisions and he squares them up so that they're confronted with the loveliness of the lovely Christ the love of Christ is not a love which you pick up and you place down it's not a matter of convenience It's not a virtue for some people in the church and not for others. There is never a reason, never an excuse to to act in a way that would be unbecoming of the love with which we have been, or the love with which we receive in this Jesus Christ. It's a love that Jesus shares with us in John 15 that we are to abide in. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15. He's the expert on this. Just as the Father has loved me. These are the words of Christ. Just as the Father has loved me. Now catch this life-shattering, mind-blowing phrase. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. He's speaking here to his 11 disciples He said, I have loved you in the same love that my Father has loved me. Now abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things, which is one of the more popular phrases Jesus uses in the Gospel of John, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full so the joy of christ the fullness of our joy in christ is centered and encompassed with our abiding in his love this love is not abstract this love is personal you may recall last week that i mentioned that the gifts highlight the personhood of the Spirit because he gives them, he distributes them as he wills. So it highlights the fact that the Spirit is not an it, the Spirit is a person. Christ's love highlights his person because he loves from this. He loves from out of his resurrected, ascended, presently interceding, one day returning life. He died for us. He rose again for us. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's presently interceding for us as the perfect word before our Father in heaven. And he's promised to one day return and claim his bride. This is off-the-charts kind of love. So just as James mentions that faith without works is dead, Hope and faith without love profits us nothing. Henry Scougal in his book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, had this stellar quote, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Scougal also said that he who loves mean and sordid things does thereby become base and vile. But a noble and well-placed affection does advance and improve the spirit unto a conformity with the perfections which it loves. One writer said about 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that it is the greatest, strongest, deepest thing Paul ever wrote. Paul is giving the Christians in Corinth a discourse on ecclesiology, on the understanding of the nature and function of the church, as well as biblical theology, that has its foundation in this knowing and believing and preaching of Christ crucified and risen. And it's rooted in the love of God displayed perfectly through the loveliness of the lovely Christ. The primary agenda of the church, our number one agenda, we, we, we have an agenda of love. This is how we will be known. Mentioned a few moments ago what a fruitful week we had at camp this past week. One of the leaders of the churches mentioned as we were parting that uh, one of his students said, this is, the, this is the best camp that I've ever attended. I probably should have followed up and said, is this his first one or second one? He said, this is the best camp that I've ever attended. And the reason that it's good is, is he said, these people here, they care about one another and they care about me. Jesus told his disciples, this is how you will be known. You will be known in your love for each other. Why is it that so many churches are known for their divisiveness? I've told pastors before who've called or reached out about a church in the area, inquiring, understanding that they have an opening for their church, inquiring what I might know of this. And it's broken my heart To tell some of them, don't waste your time. That place is toxic. It's it's poisonous. Don't waste your time. Why are we known by divisions? Which is what most people know about the church at Corinth. What's the first thing that often comes to your mind when you think about Corinthians? That church has problems. Problems. Yet we see the faithfulness of the Lord in sending them, this apostle, to not just talk about the love of Christ, but to demonstrate for them. Not just to say, you need to preach Christ and him crucified, but to demonstrate that before him. So, our first point is this. Kids, you with me? Five minus one equals what? 5 minus 1 equals nothing. Pastor Nathan, where'd you go to school? 5 minus 1 equals nothing. Now this is where I get this bad math, okay? This math is good math when the actual problem is dealing with love. Listen to what Paul says here in the first three verses. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, that's one, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I know all mysteries, all knowledge, and if I have all the, the kind of faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. What about giving all my possessions to feed the poor? What if I surrender my body to be burned? Well, Paul says, if you don't have love, you're like a clanging cymbal. You have nothing, you are nothing. So these five objects that are here, you can possess all five of them, but you—if you do not have love—you have nothing. So this is where, I, where that's where I get the bad math. The gift of pros- prophecy, the possessing of all knowledge, the kind of faith that moves mountains. If you do not have love, it doesn't matter what gift you possess. You are nothing, and you have gained nothing. So that helps us to see who and what we are in light of the love of Christ. I'm not trying to rewrite God's word, only attempting to apply it to what surrounds us today. But I believe if Paul were circulating letters today and he considered issues that the church is grappling with, and I'll just highlight one of them social justice. I believe he would rebuke us for our lack of love. People on both sides of this issue are firmly locked in their positions. They're lobbying statement after statement toward one another. And their tribe, after one of these bombs gets sent the other direction, picks this up and celebrates as if this were the final and deciding blow. The heart underneath the statements is to prove and embarrass the other one. And my thought is this. Has it really come to this? I mean, we should stand on the Bible. You should defend the Bible. You should think critically. But it is though the church has resorted back to the little games that we played as a kid you know somebody say something to me my retort back to them I know you are but what am I I know you are but what am I or sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me or whatever it is you that they may say to one another today to call this conversation childish really is not enough I believe the Bible would call it lovelessness five minus one equals nothing and we can pursue biblical truth but we pursue biblical truth as as from those who have received this eternal love from Christ number two love in the person of Christ verses four through seven love is not simply a virtue love is a person and this person is the altogether lovely Christ. Verses 4 through 7. I want to walk us through these phrases and show how each of these reside in the person and nature of Christ and, when they, and what it looks like when it's fleshed out in the life of Christians. Christ is lovely in his patience. He encompasses these virtues in glorious perfection. There is not a person more patient, more long-suffering than Christ. He is forbearing and long-suffering. He's never imbalanced in what he says or what he does. Don't we find in Christ the perfect demonstration of patience? We see his long-suffering in Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowless, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Moses, as he heard the voice of the Lord, he he heard God say his name. This is what he heard God say. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Paul said to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And he said, do it with humility and gentleness, with patience. Christ personifies this perfectly and calls us in humility, in gentleness, to be patient and tolerant with one another. In light of the great patience extended to us in Christ, we must manifest Christ in our life through our patience for one another. This doesn't blindly excuse a wrong done, but attempts to extend grace and mercy to one another in light of the eternal grace and mercy that is still ongoing as a result of the Christ of the cross. Because Christ is so precious to you and you have him in sight, demonstrate that you are a patient person every Christian every single one of us is a work of God's grace that's currently in process none of us have finished none of us have arrived we just have that promise that God is going to bring to completion that which he began so that's the blueprint right there for us to extend grace and be gentle and patient and humble one another an impatient person is a miserable person because he's momentarily forgotten how patient God is with us. One of the practices I have as a parent is to, with some regularity, try to ask my children how I'm doing as a dad. And it's, just a, it's always been a helpful, insightful question to ask them. Uh, I try to f- free them up, to be honest with me and uh, to never disagree with anything that they say about that. It's just, it's helpful. It, it's helpful to know what they witness or what they're seeing and what they're understanding of, uh, of, of what a dad's trying to do in being a godly father. One of these particular days, I was with Jaden and we were driving and I just asked her this question. Um, I said, so we, based on uh, what you hear us talk about, like the things that are consistent with a Christian, are there any incons- inconsistencies you see in my life? I said, or better yet, you've been reading the Bible. You've been reading some portions in the Bible that describe this is what a Christian looks like. There's just been anything that you think it calls into question what I'm saying and what the Bible's describing and how I live. Now, I, th- I think most parents were probably hoping, as I was, that you'd hear, you know, just glowing evidences of the Lord. Well, that wouldn't happen in this day. She said, well, actually, yes. There is something that I've witnessed and seen in you that it, I just have a question about. And I said, well, thank you for saying that much. Would you help me? And she said, yeah. It's when we're driving in the car. And the things that you say about other drivers as we're driving in the car. And it struck me like a loving, grace-filled sledgehammer. She was exactly right. Exactly right. Because what I'm saying was essentially this. This is my road. I'm the most important person on this road. And anybody who's doing anything to keep me from doing what I want to do on my road is obviously in the wrong. That was just one way an un like impatience was coming out in my life and God used a young girl to point this out. And it's been helpful. Love is patient. The language of love with respect to patience does not express itself as this. I don't have time for this. ever said that? I don't have time for this. Me, I've gone so far as to have conversations with God at times about these matters. I'm trying to restructure and reconfigure a theology of sanctification in these conversations with the Lord. The posture of my heart has been to say to him, even if I don't verbalize it, listen, God, I understand that you're in control. I get it. You do things to test your people. I've read, understood, and grasped that when these challenging things come, that eventually they're going to be for my benefit. That's what's going on in my mind and my heart. But then, essentially, I'm saying, but not this. I I don't have time for this. Not now. I'm impatient. It's lovelessness. Not towards primarily others, but it's a lovelessness towards Christ. Robert Chapman, a pastor effectually known as the bishop. I can't remember if he's the bishop or apostle of love. Forgot to look that one back up. But that's how he's known. He had this to say in response to friends who would critique his early sermons. There are many who will preach Christ, but not so many who will live Christ. My great aim is to live Christ. So Christ is lovely in his patience. Christ is lovely in his kindness. There is no kinder of a person or no person more kind than Christ. To consider him in his perfections as the one who gave his life for imperfect people. Christ is the reason that God extends forgiveness to us. So Romans 2, 4 says, the kindness of God leads to our repentance. Don't we find him to be the perfect demonstration of kindness? Titus Chapter 3 would answer that question in this way. But when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ. We have, according to the kindness of God, been forgiven so much. The Christian must be kind. We must be kind in our disposition. We must be kind in our demeanor. And perhaps you're tempted to think right now, well, that's just not me. That's not my natural posture. My posture is to be a blunt person. or, Or you may call it, my posture is just to be honest. My posture is just to be direct. And I just would appeal to you, Spend some time in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. See the kindness and patience of Christ on display. Take that little statement and phrase to him and see how you come out of the prayer closet after you've spent time considering the kindness and patience of Christ. If If you are in Christ, it must be the new you. The old you is not going to be helpful in sanctification. The old you is an impossible savior. Get near to Christ so that we are gentle, kind, meek. Remember, it's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, the meek will inherit the, uh, the meek will be the ones that will inherit the earth. Not the prideful or the powerful, but the meek. Augustine, you know the book, um, From Ambrose looking unto Jesus that's often referenced and quoted. This is what Augustine had to say about Ambrose when Augustine was unconverted. He was drawn to Ambrose. All of us would say, there's no doubt about that. We understand why he was drawn to him. But you know why he was drawn to him? He was drawn to him because of his kindness. Not initially because he was a great teacher. He was drawn to him. Here's a kind and gentle man and he opened up the opportunity to be able to speak truth in love Christ is lovely in his rightful place of authority verses 4 through 6 the Christian is tempted toward jealousy boastfulness arrogance self-seeking being easily provoked because of our prideful misunderstanding of God's glory and the misapplication of Christ's authority That's how we are tempted. Christ, appropriately so, is zealous for his own glory. God says in Isaiah 42, 8, he will not give his glory to another, nor his praise to any graven image. Only God can rightfully demand this authority. And Christ is the subject for which it is eternally damnable to not pay homage to him the writer C.S. Lewis struggled with the psalms. He said it sounded like or the descriptions of the Lord to praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord with me. Praise Him. He said these statements were bad because it, it put into God's own mouth that whosoever offered me thanks and praise would be the one who would honor Him. C.S. Lewis described it as this way. He said it was hideously like saying, what I want most is to be told that I'm good and great. It distressed him. It made him think um, what he didn't want to think. Gratitude to God, reverence to him, obedience to him. He said, I thought I could understand, but not this perpetual eulogy. He had a problem with God demanding praise. But here was his discovery. If it were possible for a created soul fully, to appreciate, that is to love and delight in, the worthiest object of all. And to simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then the soul would be in supreme beatitude. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Christ is lovely in all things, verses 7 through 8. He is lovely as the one who bears all things. He is lovely as the one in whom our belief rests solely and securely. He is lovely as our only hope. He is lovely as the one who endures. He was never created. He is perfectly compatible as God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. He is lovely as the one in whom there is no failure. Not only does he not fail, but failure is neither found in his deity or his humanity. This is why 1 Corinthians 13 begins by saying, you can do all of these things. You can have all of these things. You can even do noble things as giving to the poor, surrendering your body to be burned. But if you do not have love, you have nothing. It profits you nothing. It's like a loud screeching fingernail on the chalkboard sound. So let me summarize it in this way. We were, or we are, created in the image of God. Our created purpose is to worship God. Our ordained and only means to fulfill our God-ordained purpose in this life is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ on our behalf. The object of our faith is Christ and all His glory. The security of our hope is the intercessory role of Christ right now on our behalf. Our means of life then is unrivaled love to this Christ and fervent love for one another. So this is what I believe it means to love Christ and to look at him through the lens of faith and hope. So look at him. Look at him. He is beautiful. Perhaps your mirror is dim because it's shaded and colored by the world. Or perhaps it's shaded and colored by your own pride. Humble yourself and look at his beauty until your sights are clearer. Marvel that he is the second person of the Trinity, the apple of God's eye, the agent through which the world is both created and sustained. Be stunned that his image is in no way tarnished, in being eternally united with sinners such as ourselves. Be in awe that he is heaven's favorite and that he and he alone is what makes heaven desirable. Love's not jealous. What is it that the Christian has to be jealous of? What do we have to be jealous of? It's a appropriately situated. Don't you think? That when gifts are distributed there's the temptation to think well why can't I do that? Or why wasn't that given to me? Or why does it seem that God uses this person in different ways than me? That sinfully pervasive thought every single one of us is struggling with that but love's not jealous is it it's not jealous the sin of jealousy is rooted in pride we could uncover it we could peel back those layers we can trace it back we can sit with it linger with it for a little while to find out where the root is and it's going to lead us right back to our own pride there's nothing deficient in Christ There's nothing deficient in the Spirit's distribution of the gifts. And when this pride is not identified, when it's not properly repented from, it's going to sour unto jealousy. Jealousy is a pervasive sin that slowly and meticulously gnaws on a person. Jealousy begins by calling into question, God, why did you do it this way? Jealousy is a poisonous sin in the life of the church. Romans 12.10 Understanding this instructs us outdo one another in showing honor. With a proper sight of Christ in view, we will be jealous for Christ to receive his glory. That's why Psalm 29 reads, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Worship the Lord in holiness. Love is not boastful. I appreciate what Alexander Strzok said in his book, Leading with Love, that these vices are totally incompatible with love. In brief, they express the self-centered life that tears apart relationships and spoils the unity that should characterize every local church. We can trace boasting all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve thought that they could be like God. Or the efforts made in Genesis 11 where the people said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower Whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Or in the New Testament, we see the Pharisees loving the chief seats, or the disciples asking among themselves to Jesus, Who is the greatest? Well, let's bring it home. Where are you most tempted to become boastful? Apart from love? Christ's love? You and I, were nothing. A boastful person is a prideful person and is guilty of placing himself on the throne of glory to receive what is only due God. You do not want to be on that throne. I still, I've said this a number of times but it bears repeating again. It still sticks in my head September 2003 Jordan and I sitting with Richard Owen Roberts he said a lot of things that day you know he said a lot of things that day you know all of them were good but here's the phrase that stuck out a man in need of affirmation is a danger in the kingdom of God it's lodged with me why because I saw that need for affirmation that need for boasting the pride of life those things are right there they were ready ready to attach themselves thanks be to God in his great mercy showing love's not boastful it's not arrogant it's not unbecoming are we God can any of us atone for a single sin any of us risen back from the dead we have no reason to boast but when the perfect comes all boasting will give way to eternal humility. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord and it will be to the glory of God the Father. Love is not unbecoming or arrogant. Arrogance is that fruit sin stemming back from our original nature that is captured in Psalm fourteen one, where it says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Charles Simeon Noted this, yet to what extent do these evils exist? How headstrong, how self-opinionated, how presumptuous are youth in general, especially where they can give vent to their dispositions without restraint. I think he just described Facebook, Twitter, whatever social platforms there are out there. People can give, people can put on full display what a moron they are. But love is modest, sober, Temperate. love is not self-centered or selfish Robert Chapman said this my business my business is to love others and not to seek that others shall love me you see how he understood the love of Christ rather than sitting back and waiting to be loved by others he said I'm going to make it my business I'm going to be proactive Active. I'm going to be intentional at loving others regardless or whether or not that same love is reciprocated back to me. That's what happens when your agenda is to love the Lord and to love others. Love does not insist on its own way. Lovelessness manifests itself in selfish thinking and selfish living. How often throughout the day are we given to thoughts about ourselves? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, I seek not what is yours, but you. You. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Prayer, excuse me, selfishness and pride are the two greatest hindrances to us flourishing in Christ. It shows in our life and in our love and in our lack thereof, it manifests itself in our prayerlessness. Prayer is perhaps the greatest expression of selflessness. It expresses our need for God and expresses It expresses our need for God and not a need to be heard by others. Love is not easily provoked or angered. God's anger toward us has been absorbed with blood. God's wrath toward us has been removed and replaced with compassionate mercy and love. He has removed his anger from us and replaced it with love. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. A proper side of Christ guides us into how to treat those who have wronged us. Was not the blood of Christ shed to cover our offense against him. Hasn't God reconciled us to himself? God's no longer our enemy. Christ removed that by appeasing God's wrath against us and by replacing it with love. We see that from Colossians chapter two. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, does not become joyful over wrongdoing. Unrighteousness and wrongdoing break us and cause us to appeal in love to one another to repent. This is why church discipline is so painfully hard. Nobody's rejoicing in that. Nobody's joyful over the wrongdoing. But we are still required to love redemptively. Love rejoices with the truth. Love bears or covers all things. We are going to fail. Christ has not and will not fail. Christ, or excuse me, love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love is never going to fail. This is a whole lot to take in. A whole lot to take in. Last night, in the midst of uh, just the pace of life that, uh, that our family is in, yesterday, April and I got the opera, we, we celebrated 17 years. Uh, of marriage, and so uh, we got a couple hours last night to, to get away, and we went to one of them restaurants where you don't understand anything on the menu, and they bring out three different menus, and, and really, it's, it's, it's I, I don't know any Italian, and so the, the, uh, a, a t- the, the server, he kept coming back, and he just said, I know it's a lot to take in, I know it's a lot to take in, I'll, I'll be back with you, and uh, we were just said, you just tell us what's good, what's flavorful, and we will, uh, <clears throat> yeah, we'll, we we will we will listen to you. But there's a lot. There's a there's a lot to take in 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 this in this yeah. chapter, and I want to encourage you to sit with it, linger in that. A few years ago, we uh, took a trip to New York, and it was the first trip that we had taken. Uh, we had taken Blake with us, and so the first day we get there. We arrive in the city, we go to Central Park, and we're uh, just playing around in Central Park. And he's just being a boy, he's jumping and playing on the rocks, and he's just having the time of his life. Well, the next day is when a lot of the activities that we had planned started. The one thing that he wanted to do is he wanted to go see the Statue of Liberty. So this is what we did in this day. So we, we, we saw the Statue of Liberty. Uh, then after that, we got tickets to go see Fiddler um, on the Roof, and then we went to one of our favorite restaurants to eat there in, in, in New York. And then following the uh, musical, we went to go get ice cream afterwards. So we go back to our hotel. We're at our hotel, and, uh, and, and we were sitting, out on the, were sitting out on the balcony. And so one of the things that Blake and I did each night was we would just kind of recount the day. What did we do? What was enjoyable? And uh, so the first night we did this, he just went on and on about how much he enjoyed the rocks. The second night, okay, uh, after we did all those things that I mentioned to you, I said, Well, what'd you think about today? And he said, What do we do today? I was like, Are you kidding me? So I just told him again what we, what we did. He said, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He, said, he giggled a little bit. He said, That was fun, but well, we didn't jump on any rocks or anything. So it's like, We didn't jump on any rocks, man. We saw the Statue of Liberty. That's the thing you wanted to go see. We did this and we did this and we did this. And the problem was his enjoyment was in something simple. His enjoyment was, I mean, he liked these other things, but he was defining enjoyment in rocks in a park. So do do you find... Christ to be lovely as he's presented in the Word. What is in you right now that is competing with the beauty of Christ? What is tempting your soul in such a way that is rivaling Christ's proper place on the throne of your heart? What is getting in the way of time in the Bible, whether this is pleasure reading, meditating, or studying, which don't have to be separated or segmented? What is taking the place of effectual praying? What limitations are you placing on God? Preaching by itself cannot make you find Jesus attractive. Just this past week, a few of us were talking while we were at camp about a former friend who, several years ago, he abandoned the faith. His marriage was destroyed. He eventually signed over the rights of his own son. During these days, initial days, someone asked him, like, what happened, man? You were in the church. You were a pastor. You were a singer-songwriter. You preached about Christ. You captured in such wonderful ways, truths about Christ? And this was his answer. I was faking it. Being in a church that strives to hold forth Christ through preaching is not enough to force you to find Christ attractive. We're not holding you down and making you consume him until he becomes enjoyable to you. So how do you know whether or not you found him to be lovely? You love him. That's how you know you you love him. Jesus restoring Peter. Simon, do you love me? Can 2 Corinthians 5.14 be said of you that you are controlled by the love of Christ? For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Lastly, love in the life of the church, verses 8 through 13. Love is never going to fail, verse 8. Love never fails. The gifts of prophecy, tongues, knowledge, knowledge, Each of these are going to be done away with. The verse here is, they are going to cease, but love will never cease. Love is not temporal, it's eternal. This is why we spend our time considering the love of the altogether lovely Christ. And aren't you thankful that his love is not temporary? How good is it to know that Christ's love is not momentary? His love is not going to change While the gifts of the Spirit are a means of His grace, divine love is grace itself and therefore remains when the means to it cease, said one author. Verses 9 through 10, the gifts are temporary. They are not complete in and of themselves. We know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. This is a remarkable few verses because we have these eschatological realities as they fit in time and space. The perfect is a reference to Christ, and it is a reference to his imminent return. The partial will give way to the eternal. There will be no need for healing when Christ returns and the Christian is given his glorified body. There will be no need for knowledge when the perfect comes and we see him as he is. Translators understand verse 9, as we know in fragmentary ways, and we prophesy part by part, we have fragments, but one day we will know in full. What has been revealed now is sufficient for now. When the perfect comes, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that we will be fully known, and we will fully know. The problem has never been on Christ's part. He is perfect, and is perfectly demonstrated in all his glorious attributes. We must humble ourselves to admit that the mirror we at times look at through is dim. The ancients didn't have the mirrors and lighting that we do today. They would use a stone so that you could make out the image, but it wouldn't be as clear as glass that reflects and refracts an image. That's why Paul says we used to know in part, prophesy in part, do childish things and see dimly. One pastor said, Our present knowledge is imperfect because it is partial. This is imperfection of degree rather than quality. What we know of God by revelation is indeed truly known, for it is infallibly communicated. But when this fragmentary disclosure at last gives place to the beatific vision of God in Christ, then that which is done in part shall be done away. One day we will see him as he is. One day, all of our questions will be answered. One day, when the partial is done away with, we, we will see him who is perfect. Until that day, we look and we love. As we close, let's consider verse 13. Faith, hope, and love. Paul holds out that the greatest of these is love. These three virtues exist and abide, not just temporarily or momentarily, but they abide eternally. There is a sense in which they will still exist. Though faith will eventually give way to sight, there remains eternal trust in the glorified Christ. We will, for all eternity, be learning about him. As hope gives way to realization, there is a sense that our current expectation for his return will be a means through which we are able to comprehend and enjoy the eternal bliss of Christ in heaven. So in other words, right now we trust and we wait. We faith and we hope. One day it will give way to the person that we wait for and trust in. This is in part why we should be busy about storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Spiritual gifts given by the Spirit himself as he wills are a foretaste and will one day give way to the unveiled loveliness of the lovely Christ. At some point, the gifts will cease entirely. I know some of you are waiting to hear whether or not that question, are the gifts still in operation today? We're going to look at that. We're going to attempt to answer that. But that's not primarily what this text is about. Paul didn't want them, in light of those as recipients of the gifts, to miss the love of Christ. And we don't need to convolute conversation, appropriate conversation about the gifts, and miss out on the loveliness of Christ. They are going to cease. However, love will never end. This is the more excellent way. The loveliness of Christ and love for each other. What will it be like when the shadow gives way to reality? Dimly light gives way to full light. To see him as he is. To be with him as he is. To worship him no longer through means of grace. But to worship him with zero inhibition and zero hindrance. Of faith, hope, and love. Love is the greatest because it is the only virtue that is the essence of Christ. He never had to have faith. Nor has he ever had to hope. But he is love. Jeffrey Wilson said this, love is the end in relation to which the other two virtues, hope and faith, are only means. And this relation remains even in the state of perfection. So you can do fill in the blank. But if you do not have love, you're nothing. And it profits you nothing because it shows that you do not have the love of Christ the more excellent way that Paul promised to the Corinthians is the love that's made known in the love of the altogether loveliness of Christ. Let's pray. As we pray, I want you to consider this hymn. Entitled, Hide Away in the Love of Jesus. Come weary saints, though tired and weak. Hide away in the love of Jesus. Your strength will return by his quiet streams. Hide away in the love of Jesus. Come, wandering souls, and find your home. Hide away in the love of Jesus. He offers the rest that you yearn to know. Hide away in the love of Jesus. Hear him calling your name. See the depths of his love in the wounds of his grace and hide away. Come, guilty ones weighed down with sin, hide away in the love of Jesus. The freedom that you long for is found in him. Hide away in the love of Jesus. Come, hopeless hearts, do not despair. Hide away. In the love of Jesus, for 10,000 joys await you there. Hide away in the love of Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen.